BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. As I speak, what is the day, man? I've lost track of time. Wednesday, November 22nd. Wow. Well, baby boomers know what they mean. That's the day John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas. I just said that date for the first time today. I was like, whoa, man. Uh, I'm about to bring on my distinguished guest. He's patiently waiting, but like I always do, I try to tell folks what's going on in the world on this particular day. Uh, so pick two uh, items of interest, uh, one far more important than the other, uh, peace in the Middle East, at least for four days. Let's, let's hope it goes beyond four days. Uh, there was a ceasefire announced uh, last night. Uh, and then this one, we had a little fun with this uh, uh, in the show with Monroe. Uh uh, a mini uh, brawl has broken out of sorts uh, between uh, David Axelrod and uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, President Joe Biden has uh, called allegedly uh, David Axelrod a, and I quote, prick. Uh, and Marie Dow, uh, the columnist for the New York Times, rose to defend her friend, David Axelrod. He goes, I've known David Axelrod. He's not a prick. That was her lead. <laughs> is that a good lead? David Axelrod is not a prick. Uh <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should think, rethink that sentence if you want to defend him. I took the deep dive with Monroe Anderson, as I said, on this very important topic. Uh, you can hear it on that Monroe Anderson interview. We had a little fun with it. Uh, so uh, come on, Dems. You guys are fighting already. <laughs> You're not going to win an election if, like, one of your great strategists is fighting with your president. Just a little advice from your humble podcaster. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. He's been patiently waiting. Distinguished guest introduce yourself. Oh, hi, I'm uh, Jim Risen. How are you? That's good. Okay, that, wow. Every now and then I get a guest who's like from the, uh, I'm just going to give you my name and my serial number, uh, School of Prisoners of War. Uh, so, all right, I'll take the deeper dive. Uh, James Risen oh, is- I'm happy to say more if you want me to. Yes, definitely. Go ahead, Jim. The floor is yours. I am the uh, author of The Last Honest Man, my new book about Frank Church and the Church Committee. And um, it's my fifth book that I've written. And uh, I think it's uh, 
if I may be so bold, I think it's my best. And uh, it's the first full history that I've ever really written um, about, or a bio, I, I should say first biography that I've written. Uh, it is uh, an excellent book, in my humble opinion. And everybody knows I'm a political junkie, Jim. I've been following politics for a long time. Shout out to listener Frank for his, uh, turning me on to it. And uh, I've been obsessively reading it. And uh, my yeah, my uh, family are like, would you stop reading that book for five minutes and put down that book? I go, wait a minute. It's the CIA and the mob. They're killing Castro. Hold on. Uh, so... This book is a sweeping uh, biography of a man uh, and a moment in time. The man is uh, Senator Frank Church, who was a Democratic senator from Idaho from 1956 to 1980. Uh, the moment in time uh, was the uh, committee he chaired in the Senate to investigate the malfeasance of the FBI and the CIA, particularly the CIA and uh, the Church Committee. If any year a baby boomer like me, I think Jim may be a little too young to remember this in real time, but this is a, any political junkie who is above the age of like 65 knows the church committee. It came right on the heels of the Watergate committee, uh, and which like <laughs> all political junkies above the age of 65 know about the Watergate committee. But it was the church committee uh, that... Um, took the deep dive into uh, the ne'er-do-well behavior of the CIA to a well, lesser degree, but also to some degree, the FBI. And uh, Jim does an outstanding, in my humble uh, opinion, of putting it all together in, a, in a, a fair and balanced way, to quote Fox TV. Uh, and uh, so I urge everybody, political junkies out there, to uh, go get the book. Either buy the book or go get it from your library. There's nothing wrong with going to the library. All right, Jim. Uh, so, uh, we'll start at the top. Uh, you're a journalist, lifelong journalist. That's pretty much all you've done since you went to college. I read your uh, Wikipedia file. Uh, and, um, so, uh, and you work for the New York times. That could be a whole show. Jim's a day. That New York times. I would love to do a show on that. I, I, I didn't think about it. I had the Maureen Dowd reference at the outset. Um, what, got you to uh intrigued you about enough to write about to take the deep dive in frank church do you have your own baby boomer memories of this time or in 1975 were you preoccupied with other things and not paying attention to politics and you discovered it later in life but what motivated you uh, to take this deep dive well the main reason was um you know i covered the cia uh for many years uh for the new york times and um as a beat reporter covering the CIA, when you talk to people at the CIA and you ask them, you know, why do you do things the way you do? Uh, I found over the years that the, they would often say, well, we've been doing it this way since the church committee. Or you would ask them why they don't do other things. And you say, well, we, we can't do those things because of the church committee. And so it became clear to me over the years covering the CIA that um, the church committee had been like a watershed moment in the history of the CIA and the intelligence community. And I didn't know much more about it than that. And then 9-11 uh, happened. And um, Dick Cheney, if you remember, started blaming 9-11 on the church committee and Frank Church. and. Um, it was a very odd, bizarre uh, way 
for Cheney to try to uh, uh, shift the blame from the Bush administration uh, because Frank Church had been dead since 1984 and the church committee had existed 30 years earlier. And what he was trying to say in his own weird, awkward way was that uh, the church committee had limited, had imposed rules on the intelligence community. And in his view, they made it less aggressive than it had been before. And the truth is that the church committee, as I got into it, that it was really so it was really Dick Cheney who planted the seed in my mind of I should go back and actually figure out what the church committee really did. And um, so it was in the back of my mind for many years. Uh, and I finally got around to writing the book. Um, and what the church committee really did uh, was they they uh, forced the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community to operate under the rule of law for the first time. And it was probably the most important moment in the history of the intelligence community. They brought uh, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, and the rest of the intelligence community uh, under a, a set of, of uh, restrictions and laws and uh, administrative rules and executive orders that were all passed in the wake of the church committee that created the, the modern rules of the road for the intelligence community. And I think it's probably the most important moment uh, in, as I said, in the history of the intelligence community. It makes the church committee, I think, the most important congressional investigation in history. Wow. Even more important than Watergate. I believe so. I think it's had a longer lasting legacy and impact. Uh, it, I think, you know, if you look at what the right wing says today, they claim that we have a deep state. I believe that, it, in fact, that that's a conspiracy theory today, but that if the church committee had not existed and hadn't done what they did, we re, we would still have a deep state. I think there was a deep state prior to the church committee, and I think the church committee brought the intelligence community under the rule under the rule of law for the first time. All right, uh, I, I'm going to follow up on something you said later because I want you to explain to folks uh, a little more about the church committee. But you said um, uh, uh, they, they Cheney. I, I can't say this with a straight face, uh, blaming the, their negligence uh, right before 9-11 on the church committee. What a joke, Cheney. Uh, all you had to do was listen, read the reports from the FBI that there were uh, folks getting lessons in how to take off a plane, uh, but not how to land a plane. Well, you know, I don't know. You can't blame that on Frank Church. The guy is dead since 1984. Hello, read your intel, intel reports and stop crying. Uh, that's just me, not Jim. All right. Um, so what it is, I'm just, when you said, when he, when I was reflecting on the, uh, Cheney's comments that you, uh, reiterated, I was like, what in the world does the CAA not do because of the church committee? I'm trying to think about like, uh, in, in just this century, even my millennial listeners can remember the amount of surveillance that, uh, post 9-11, uh, and the, just the lying that went on about Iraq. But before we get to that, let's go back in time. 
and just fill in some of the details. And uh, Jim's book, excellent book, as I said, starts with a biography of Frank Church and gives you a sense of the man and who he was and what the times that shaped him. So why don't you take a moment just to um, give folks just a sense of Frank Church, again, a senator from Iowa, excuse me, Idaho, uh, who was a Democrat. I know that's hard for a lot of millennials to, to re- absorb that one. Uh, Jim, there was a time when Democrats won in Idaho. Uh, he was a World War II vet as well. Take it away. Yeah, Frank Church is really a fascinating character that not very many people know about. He was born in Boise, Idaho in 1924. And uh, from the very first, uh, he was considered like the smartest kid in Boise. Uh, He won a national uh, oratory contest when he was 16. He uh, had a letter to the editor published uh, explaining, uh, defending the the, senator from Idaho when he was 14. He was uh, the student body president of Boise High School, and he was also probably uh, a, the, the, a rare intellectual in uh, in Idaho. He uh, he married the the daughter of the governor, you know, and he he rose incredibly fast. He went he went to Stanford, went to Harvard Law School, and then switched to Stanford Law School. And uh, he got elected to the Senate when he was only 32 in 1956 as a as a liberal Democrat. Um, Idaho at that time was uh, what we would today call a purple state. It was uh, it was both, you know, not quite a swing state. It was still it leaned Republican. But uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, and Harry Truman uh, won. Idaho five straight presidential elections, and it was uh, fairly frequent uh, to see a, a Democratic governor or a Democratic senator or member of Congress, really up until uh, the 70s and 80s in Idaho, when things really began to change. Uh, and when he got to the Senate in 1957, his first year, he was really a fairly conventional Democrat. Uh, uh, Cold War Democrat like John Kennedy uh, believed that the Democrats had to be more hawkish than the Republicans just to fight back against some of the McCarthyism of the 1950s, the witch hunts and uh, the belief that, you know, liberals were soft on communism. Uh, And so, but by the early 1960s, uh, Church began to uh, turn against the war in Vietnam. He was one of the very first senators to uh, come to believe that the Vietnam War was unwinnable and that it was a mistake. And he based that uh, in part on his own experience in World War II when he had been an intelligence officer in China uh, for the U.S. Army. And he had seen how incompetent and corrupt the uh, Chinese regime of uh, Chiang Kai-shek had been that the U.S. was supporting. And he went to Vietnam in 1962 on a trip as a senator, and, he, and it reminded him of, uh, of Chiang Kai-shek's regime. And he began to believe that Vietnam was unwinnable. And he tried to, uh, be, he began to uh, move to cut off aid to uh, 
to the Diem regime in South Vietnam. And then after John Kennedy, who was his, a friend of his, was assassinated, he became much more open in his opposition to the war when Lyndon Johnson became president. And uh, he took the lead, really, in the Senate uh, among uh, uh, in the anti-war camp and, and became, by the end of the 1960s and early 1970s, really the uh, probably the most prominent anti-war senator. And he led a series of legislative efforts called the Co uh, Cooper Church Amendments uh, to defund the war in Vietnam, to block all funding for uh, Pentagon funding for the war. And they, they, his amendments kept getting defeated, but he kept getting more and more support in the Senate and in the House, uh, so that by the end of the war, Nixon knew he didn't have much time left to end the war. And a lot of historians now credit Church and his efforts uh, for accelerating Nixon's timetable to uh, pull out of to get out of Vietnam. And after the Vietnam, the Vietnam experience, his uh, really radicalized church. It changed him from being a conventional Democrat into a, a really radical left-wing uh, senator on, especially on foreign policy. He came to believe that the United States was turning into a militaristic empire, and he compared it frequently in his public speeches to the Soviet Union. And he compared in probably one of the most remarkable speeches I've ever read from a, a U.S. senator. He said, he said in the middle of the war in Vietnam, he said that our role in Vietnam is no different from the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. And he said that in 1968 uh, while he was up for re-election in Idaho. And he won re-election in 1968 in Idaho, even though he was the most prominent anti-war Democrat. Uh, and so it's a remarkable story that it's hard for people to wrap their heads around today. But that all that experience not only radicalized him, it began to point him towards the CIA and the intelligence community. And it, he came to believe that the intelligence community, in particular the CIA, was at the heart of this uh, effort by a national security state to turn America into a militaristic empire, and that the power of the CIA had to be reined in. And that's why he wanted to run what became known as the Church Committee uh, when it was created in 1975. He believed that uh, an investigation had to be conducted into what it had been doing for the last 30 years. And it's important to remember that at that time, there'd, there'd been no oversight of the CIA at all for 30 years. Uh, there, was, there were no congressional intelligence com uh, committees. And this was, so the Church Committee was really a pioneer in investigating and uh, uh, the CIA for the very first time. Uh, a couple follow-ups to the points you made uh, on that riff. Uh, and I thought, number one, uh, his uh, evolution as a lefty, a leftist anti-war senator and that great moment that you captured in the book, which I cited on the show 
a couple times and have fun with it because it kind of applies to politicking here in, in the city of Chicago with the alderman and, and the mayor. Uh, and so uh, you're recounting the scene where uh, Frank Church is becoming, Senator Frank Church is becoming more and more independent uh, and critical of the Viet- the war in Vietnam. And he's having a meeting with uh, President Johnson, a Democrat who had been his leader in the Senate. He, Johnson came from the Senate. Uh, and Johnson is a bully trying to bully uh, Frank Church into uh, falling into line on Vietnam. And so Johnson says, I'm doing this off of memory. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, so who's your sources for your views on Vietnam? Uh, and Frank Church says, uh, Walter Lippmann. Walter Lippmann was a uh, sort of a liberal columnist at the time, well-known journalist. And then Lyndon Johnson says, oh, okay, well, why don't you go to Walter Lippmann to get your dams built for Idaho? And I was like, damn, that's, that's some hardball politics, right? Right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, you know, he and Johnson had this volatile relationship that went back, as you said, to when uh, Johnson was Senate Majority Leader. Uh, and the very first day, I think one of the funniest stories was the his first day in the Senate when Church had to go down to the well of the Senate to get sworn in as he's walking back after he's sworn in by Vice President Richard Nixon. In 1957, Johnson grabs his arm and pulls him over and says, now that you're a senator, and he started lobbying him right there for this procedural vote. And uh, and Church ultimately votes against Johnson on this procedural vote. And uh, later, years later, Church said in a oral history he did for, with the uh, Johnson um, Presidential Library says, when I voted, I could see Johnson throw down his pen (laughs) from behind. And he says, I was persona non grata for the next six months. He didn't speak to me at all. So it's pretty uh, Johnson played hardball with everybody. Absolutely. Old school hardball. Uh, And the other thing about Frank Church, very important before we move into the church committee. Uh, So uh, Jim just pointed out the church was reelected in the very volatile year of 68, uh, even though he was moving to the left on foreign policy uh, in a state that's kind of conservative state. Then he got reelected in 74. All right. And uh, you pointed this out in a book. And I just like um, a lot of my listeners just to think about this. Uh, as radical as Frank Church was on foreign policy, he didn't play on gun rights. And he knew that if he was going to get reelected to be a radical uh, in uh, the Senate on foreign policy and play a very important role, he had to be, I don't even know if they had uh, the NRA back in the day, but he had to fall in line on gun rights because guns are big in Idaho. And he was no liberal, forget a radical, no liberal uh, on uh, on the issue of gun control. And he was also a staunch supporter of Israel, which uh, won him a lot of fear. So he was very cautious in some ways, Jim, on, on issues that he knew he needed to uh, champion in order to get reelected. So kind of a pragmatic. He was, he was, uh, it was really interesting to talk to people who worked for him on his staff about uh, gun control. And there was one, uh, one of his aides told me, uh, he said during Vietnam, he says, uh, you know, you're opposed to the war. Why do you support guns? And he said, Church just looked at him and said, do you like your job? And he said, if, if, uh, if I go against, if I 
go if I support gun control, you're going to be out of a job, and so will I. And uh, but a lot of people couldn't tell. He's he was such a good politician that even the people around him couldn't tell whether he was doing it purely for political reasons or because he really believed uh, in uh, gun rights. You know, he was a very good politician when it, especially when it came to issues important to Idaho. Um, all right. So let's get to uh, the uh, church committee. Uh, and there's many aspects, uh, many things they investigated that we could take a deep dive on. I'm going to uh, limit it to three. You, you're free uh, on this podcast to raise others. But I definitely want to talk about three. I'm going to put them out here right now. Um, the uh, the uh, Kennedy uh, assassination, uh the mobs, this one's really big for Chicago listeners, connection to attempts to assassinate Castro, uh, and then the murder of Fred Hampton, uh, which we're coming up to, I can do the math, Jim, oh, geez, 54 years uh, Fred Hampton was killed while he was sleeping on the west side of Chicago. So why don't you start by talking about what it was in particular that triggered uh, the Senate? Uh, Mike Mansfield was the president at the time, the leader of the Senate, to set up the church committee. Uh, and what were some of their overall goals when they began in 1974, 75? Yeah, well, uh, Mike Mansfield, as you said, was the Senate majority leader. And he had been pushing to create a uh, oversight committee to investigate the CIA ever since he joined the Senate in the 50s. And he kept getting rejected because the CIA would lobby its supporters in the Senate uh, and and quash all, every effort uh, over the years. Uh, but then in 1974, with Watergate and Nixon's resignation, uh, the Democrats won a massive landslide victory in the midterm elections in 1974. There were uh, at the after the election, there were 60 Democratic senators. And I think 294 Democrats in the House, something like that. Uh, and it was a massive uh, majorities for the Democrats. And it was they were brought, you know, those people were elected uh, on a message of reform. To uh, it was a very liberal, reformist-oriented new class in the Senate and the House. And in the right after that midterm election in December 1974, Cy Hirsch, a New York Times investigative reporter, uh, broke a huge story uh, about uh, the domestic spying by the CIA, uh, especially against anti-war dissidents and uh, civil rights activists uh, throughout the 1960s. And it was really uh, coming on the heels of Watergate. It was yet another new uh, massive uh, disclosure of government wrongdoing. And as soon as Hirsch's story was published, uh, there were there were calls uh, for congressional investigations of the CIA and uh, Mansfield. Uh, there were a number of committees in the Senate and the House that wanted to uh, do their own investigations. But Mansfield uh, centralized it and took control in the Senate and instead of having one of the existing committees do an investigation, he got the Senate to pass a resolution to create a temporary 
CIA committee. And uh, that was uh, to conduct investigations of CIA abuses. And uh, he uh, initially wanted a uh, senator who was well-liked by everybody named uh, Phil Hart from Michigan uh, to be the chairman of the committee. But Hart told him that he had cancer and he was uh, couldn't do it. And they recommended that uh, Mansfield get Frank Church to do it because uh, he knew Church was interested. And so uh, Mansfield turned to Church and uh, let him uh, chair the committee. For Church, it was a very important moment in his career because just before Hirsch's story came out and the committee was created, he had decided to run for president in 1976. And um, he was in the process of forming a, a, a committee, a campaign committee, when he got the opportunity to chair the, uh, the church committee. And he promised Mansfield that he wouldn't run for president while the investigation was underway. And uh, there, were, there was a lot of controversy over exactly what promise, what, what Church promised Mansfield, because some people thought that he had promised not to run at all in 1976. Uh, but Church always insisted that what he'd only promised was he wouldn't run until after the investigation was over. And so that led to one of the great controversies of the uh, church committee was people in the press and Republicans claiming that he was just doing it to burnish his uh, campaign credentials for 1976. But in Church's mind, that was not what he was doing. He was trying to, he actually thought that running the committee was harming his ability to run for president and uh, that it was going to make it more difficult, which in the end, he was right. It did make it much more difficult. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That was just Republican trash talking, Jim. They do it all the time. Well, you had those William Sapphire quotes in there. I was smiling. William Sapphire, youngsters, was a, a right-wing columnist for the New York Times for a year. He was the hit man. He used to write Spiro Agnew speeches. Now, I'm making this up. Go look it up. You'll see it. So then he got a job at the New York Times, supposedly the liberal newspaper. They had William Sapphire, and he would use that very valuable space in the New York Times to rip liberals and undercut them. Kind of like what – so there's a couple of columnists they got now who do that same sort of thing while pretending they're just above it all and just thinking, you know, objective. He used to uh, – he actually – when I was a reporter there, he attacked me too in, in his columns. For real? You were just a kid reporter. Yeah. What did you do? I was, wrong? He, uh, well, I it was after nine eleven, and I reported that. You remember the uh, famous stories, infamous, I should say, infamous stories claiming there was a meeting in Prague between Al Qaeda and Iraq. Yeah. I went to Prague and I proved that that was not true. <laughs> and so he attacked me in a series of columns by name. And even though I was on the staff. Damn, man. I, I You know what? That was uh, a bit, bit of forgetfulness on my part. I didn't realize uh, Sapphire is still running columns into the 21st century. I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So don't mean to go down forever. Uh, we, he was there. It just seemed like forever. Uh, anyway, but he would be trashing Frank Church in his column uh, and mocking him. And, and uh, it's just undercutting the significance in any way he can of this investigation to make it look like it's all political, which is an old Republican well, trick. The, the interesting thing, 
just to get back to the original question you had about what they investigated, um, as soon as the church committee started, they had to, you know, just think back, imagine that there was no Senate or House Intelligence Committee today and that there was no oversight whatsoever. And that's what the situation was. And this was the first investigation in 30 years uh, of the CIA's existence. So they had to decide, okay, what are we going to look into? We got 30 years of stuff to look at. Uh, and right when they were about, when they were trying to decide what they should investigate, this very funny meeting occurred between the New York Times editors and Gerald Ford, the president. And uh, in early January 1975, right after Hirsch's story had come out, the editors of the New York Times went to talk to Ford after, in, in response to, Church, to Hirsch's story. And uh, Ford started saying, well, there's a lot of stuff you shouldn't look at. Nobody should investigate. And the editor of the New York Times said, well, like what? And Ford said, well, like assassinations. And then he says, oh, but that's off the record. So it's like an idiot, you know. <laughs> don't don't look into assassinations. And, uh, and so, no, you know, the New York Times is so stuffy. They, the editor said, well, he said it's off the record. We shouldn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the editors, Tom Wicker, got so mad at the other editors for agreeing to keep it off the record that he went to Cy Hirsch and told him what Ford had just told them. He says, he told us that they've been assassinating foreign leaders, but we can't write it. And so Hirsch went to Daniel Shore at uh, CBS and leaked it to him. And so the uh, Daniel Shore and CBS broke the story that the CIA was plotting to assassinate foreign leaders. And as soon as that came out, Frank Church and the staff and his staff said, well, that's what we got to investigate. And so they began to investigate the uh, CIA's attempts over the years to assassinate Fidel Castro and other foreign leaders. And they found very quickly that the CIA had formed an alliance with the mob, the mafia, to try to kill Castro. And um, that became the central story uh, for the first few months. That was the first big landmark investigation that the Church Committee did. They found that the CIA had uh, formed this kind of like an Ocean's Eleven type team with uh, this one guy named Johnny Rosselli, who was this flamboyant gangster from Las Vegas, and Sam Giancana, the mob boss of Chicago, and Santo Traficante, the mob boss of Tampa. And they were all brought down to the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, where they sat around talking about how to kill Castro. Uh, and, it's, uh, yeah. It's a great, it's a great, great. It is unbelievable stuff. And everything you're saying now is just bringing back to memories. Uh, a lot of just refresh because I read your book. It's hilarious. Some of this stuff is funny. Uh, and uh, we, I mean, like the bit where, and this got nothing to do with really, but we're, uh, it's an old story, but I love how you recounted it. Uh, Seymour Hersh, who is a freaking bulldog, people. 
the last thing you want to tell him is, uh, this is off the record. He'd be like, I want to growl and bark a little more. Uh, but he, he, he was having issues with his editors. He wrote the story that was too long. And so he's calling, uh, the editor at night and the editor wasn't, uh, he got a hold of the wife like midnight and the wife goes, that old deadbeat doesn't live here anymore. And this was his girlfriend. He didn't even know that the editor was like, <laughs> Oh my God. He didn't care. He called a girlfriend. Start calling the girlfriend. Woke uh, the editor up. I forget the editor's name. Woke him up, and the guy, oh, I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, you with your girlfriend, man? You haven't even divorced your wife yet. Uh, and it's yeah, Abe Rosenthal. Uh, yeah, Rosenthal. Yeah. See, but here's the thing. That story too, uh, Jim, and it, 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 it's a time that's different than it was than today. Follow me where I'm going. It was like a wake up moment for America because yeah. we tended to believe all the myths that they feed us. Like the New York Times would keep the good stuff out. You know what I mean? They knew Kennedy was playing yeah. around. They, they, they'd heard, but they'd like, oh, that's old. Ben Bradley we ran the Washington Post, was playing around with Kennedy, you know, and he kept it out of the Post. It, it, it wouldn't happen today. You know, we know everything about Trump and, and his dalliances, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, and it gets into foreign affairs. So, like part of the problem, they're investigating. Suddenly, they stumble upon these uh, efforts uh, hooking up with Giancana and the mob to kill Castro. And that here they are, Democrats. They worship JFK. Uh, he was still like like the Camelot figure in the Democratic Party. But all of a sudden, they got to deal with the reality. They got to put some damaging infra- intel out in the public sphere about how JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, was operating. And I know. And I, I know this in part because I just read it in your book. That was uh, like a psychological hurdle they had to clear. Talk a little bit about. That. Yeah, when they when the Church Committee uh, was created, you know, it had a Democratic majority. Uh, there were six Democrats, five Republicans, and Frank Church, the the one president he had been friends with was John Kennedy. Uh, and when they started, they thought that they were going to do Watergate 2.0. You know, this was just a few months after Nixon had resigned. They thought, uh, we're going to investigate how Nixon uh, used the CIA illegally. Uh, and what they found instead was that the illegal, af- the presidents had been turning the CIA into this illegal rogue operation for decades. And that every president, going back to Eisenhower, was complicit with. Uh, the CIA, and that the CIA had been doing illicit activities uh, almost from its beginning. And uh, so they had to look back at an earlier history. And that was, uh, for a lot of Democrats, that was disappointing. It was uh, suddenly they realized that some of the worst things that the CIA had done had come under John Kennedy's administration, and that Kennedy knew about it, and Kennedy had approved it or Pushed the CIA to do these things. Uh, the the effort by the CIA to uh, form an alliance with the mafia started under Dwight Eisenhower, who also wanted to kill Castro, but it continued under Kennedy, who also wanted them to try to kill other uh, leaders. Uh, there were at least five foreign leaders that uh, the CIA tried to kill, and um, the 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 funniest th- part of the whole story came about the the church committee really unraveled almost accidentally 
was how they found that while uh, Sam Giancana had been in Miami with uh, the CIA people to try to kill Castro, he one day came and told told them, "I'm I'm leaving. I got to go to Las Vegas because my girlfriend I, I think is sleeping with this other guy." And his girlfriend was Phyllis McGuire, who was a famous singer. And she, he believed she was sleeping with Dan Rowan, who later, who was a stand-up comic, who later was famous for uh, the host of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In on TV. And uh, so Bob Mayhew, who was this contractor for the CIA who was running things, convinced him not to go to Las Vegas. He says, stay here and I'll get a private investigator to investigate what's going on between Phyllis McGuire and Dan Rowan. And you you keep your attention on killing Castro. And he got the CIA to pay for a private investigator and a wiretapping of Phyllis McGuire at her hotel in Las Vegas. And this private investigator was such an amateur that a maid came into the hotel room where they had all their wiretap equipment and saw it and called the police. And the police brought in the FBI. And the private investigator flipped on Bob Mayhew right away and said, this guy named Bob Mayhew uh, hired me. And they called Mayhew in Miami and Mayhew called the CIA and says, you got to get me out of this. And so very quickly, Jagger Hoover, the director of the FBI, now knew that the CIA was working with the mob. At the same time, the FBI was investigating Sam Giancana and uh, Johnny Rosselli and Santo Traficante. The CIA was working with them. And they, the FBI kept investigating, and they found that there was another woman named Judith Campbell from Los Angeles, who was sleeping with Sam Giancana, but she was also sleeping with John F. Kennedy and would travel to the White House frequently. And so now J. Edgar Hoover had the best blackmail material on a president you could get, that he was sleeping with a woman who was also sleeping with a mob boss while the CIA was working with this mob boss to kill Castro. and. Jagger Hoover went to the White House and told Kennedy what he knew about his personal life and about his relationship with Judith Campbell. And very shortly after that, Kennedy approved the one thing that Jagger Hoover wanted more than anything else, which was to wiretap Martin Luther King. And uh, it's fairly obvious that uh, Hoover used his blackmail on this whole plot to get what he wanted from Kennedy, which was to launch this campaign of harassment and uh, surveillance of Martin Luther King. Absolutely. And it's all- Which was another, that was the other, one of the other major investigations by the church committee was how the FBI dealt with Martin Luther King. All right. Uh, We'll we'll get into that. I got to ask you a question. No ducking and dodging here. Uh, so one of the intriguing suggestions, uh, that comes out of, uh, your book 
is the possibility that Sam Giancana was murdered by the CIA. And so let me just back up a little. Sam Giancana, any baby boomer from Chicago knows that name, notorious mobster, lived in Oak Park, was discovered one day uh, in his Oak Park house dead. Killed him. I think they shot him six times to the head. Six times. One. <laughs> Not one wouldn't do it. Six times. I think it was six or five. Jim will correct me. Seven. Uh, Actually, seven. Seven. Okay, I was wrong. And, and he was making, I remember that it was like some uh, scene out of God, uh, Goodfellas. He's cooking, cooking sausage or something. I, I, he was making yeah, cooking Italian sausage in his basement. In his basement, he was killed. So clearly, he knew the person. That's so. Uh, I hadn't thought about it this way. I always thought, you know, I'm a mini mob follower uh, here in Chicago, uh, and I always thought, well, he ran afoul of the rest of the mobsters in Chicago for some uh, some mobster stuff doing with hotels in Vegas or whatever. I don't know. There's always something. Uh, and, oh, Richard Kane. That's a whole other story, ladies and gentlemen. We could do a whole show. Richard Kane makes it, his name makes it to your book. That's one of the most notorious characters in the history of Chicago law. Somehow or other, he made it, he was a chief to the uh, Cook County Sheriff, Jim. That is a story for another time, Richard Kane. Uh, so he may have been killed for Richard Kane's uh, 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 machinations, whatever. But you raised the possibility that it was a CIA hit because Giancana knew too much about, um, you know, the CIA's efforts to kill Castro. Uh, he was about to uh, be cooperative with the church committee. Um, what do you think? Do you think, what's your position on this? Uh, was it a CIA operation? Well, actually, actually what I, what I wrote in the book was uh, Sam Giancana was murdered at his house in Oak Park, uh, right before the church committee staff, just like a day or two before the church committee staff was set to travel to Chicago to interview him in preparation for his testimony before the church committee. Uh, he had agreed to testify to the church committee about the CIA's plot to try to kill Castro. Uh, and their alliance with the mafia. Right, he was killed. Then Johnny Rosselli, one of the other mobsters involved in the plot, did testify twice before the church committee. And then he was murdered right after he testified. Uh, Santo Traficante, who did not testify before the church committee and avoided subpoenas by apparently by going to Costa Rica, is widely considered to be the person who, or, who arranged the hit of Johnny Rosselli. And uh, the Chicago mob boss, uh, I think Tony Accordo, is widely considered to have given the approval for the hit both against Rosselli and uh, Giancana. Now, both both there are always there's always more than one reason i believe that a mob hit takes place i think in the case of sam giancana he had become a pain in the ass to the chicago mob he had been exiled to mexico for years if you remember by the the chicago organization didn't want him in chicago anymore he was uh he was volatile he was un impulsive too, way too public. Uh, the FBI was all over him, and he was kind of going nuts. 
because of constant FBI surveillance. Uh, but he had just come back to Chicago not long before uh, the church committee was created. And um, so he was, they were able to try to talk to him. At the same time, he was testifying before a federal grand jury about things, some things that had happened in the Chicago mob. It, uh, there was a lot of question. A lot of pundits over the years thought he was uh, assassin. He was killed because of he was talking to the federal grand jury. But I found the we got the entire transcripts of the Oak Park Police. Uh, file on the uh, investigation of Sam Giancana's uh, homicide. We got the hundreds and hundreds of pages of Oak Park police files. And the FBI agents who were working on the grand jury investigation that uh, Giancana was testifying before said that he didn't say anything and that they were about to indict him for perjury because he hadn't he had refused to provide any information to the grand jury. Uh, now it's possible the Chicago mob didn't know that, but I believe that they killed him just because they thought he was talking too much to everybody. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. And that he had, they just felt like he had a big mouth, that he was talking to the Congress, the church committee, and he was talking to the federal grand jury, and he was uh, a loose cannon who had been a pain in the ass for years and refused to stay put in Mexico. So I think that on Giancana, it's because he'd become a pain in the ass who talked too much. With Rosselli, I think it's something very similar. Rosselli was also talking to a federal grand jury about the Detroit mob and their activities in Las Vegas. But I think uh, Santo Traficante, who was the boss in Tampa and South Florida, I think he ordered his killing because he didn't like the fact that he was talking to the church committee and talking to the grand jury, and he felt like uh, he was just a, a an old pain in the ass. And so I think that's, as I said, I don't think there's any one reason why people get hit by the mob, but I, I think in those two cases, you've got to take, I think the church committee factors in in some way to the calculations by the mafia on why to kill somebody. Absolutely. That was, a, yeah, I, that was a good riff. I think you're right. Uh, and I just want to point out, uh, you know, um, when I talk about the myths, myths that were fed, uh, and, uh, the old Paul Newey line that I quote, Paul Newey was a, uh, investigator for many years, Jim, in the city of Chicago. And he told me, uh, don't underestimate your government's ability to lie to you. And uh, in this case, you have gangsters who are supposedly being invested by the FBI so that they can find them in the midst of their gangsterisms and they can be punished, thrown in jail, working with another branch of law enforcement. Effectively, the CIA is another branch of law enforcement to commit a hit, a gangster style hit on Fidel Castro. And so the cynicism embedded in that is kind of overwhelming. Uh, and it. And it's happening while America's watching the FBI with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., uh, a show that uh, young Jim probably watched when he was a kid growing up wherever he grew up. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, Mom, I want to yeah. watch the FBI. I love this show. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, a lot of cynicism here. Uh, by, by the way, there was a third witness who was murdered, third church committee witness, Orlando Letelier, the former uh, foreign minister of Chile, who uh, had been, who was in exile uh, after uh, uh, the uh, coup, de, CIA staged a coup with, uh, uh, against, uh, with Pinochet against uh, Salvador Allende. He, testified, he talked to the church committee and then his car blew up uh, in uh, downtown Washington. Yeah. And uh, Ronnie Moffat was in the, and that was killed as well. Uh, you know, I was going to ask you about uh, Fred Hampton, but we've run out of time. I urge everybody, I've done a lot of deep dives on Fred Hampton. Listen to the Flint Taylor interview. Uh, Flint Taylor was the lawyer for the Hampton family. We've done, uh, we just did drop another show with him. Uh, we talk about the death of Fred Hampton, but that's also uh, the malfeasance of the FBI is in uh, uh, James' uh, books as well. The Last Honest Man, the CIA, the FBI, the Mafia, and the Kennedys, and one senator's fight to save democracy. And I know they try to do a lot uh, with a title, Jim, but there's more. I mean, they didn't even begin to talk about, like, Africa and coups in Africa and Chile. And it's just a dark, very dark, cynical uh, moment in time. Uh, and, uh, Jim, I want to thank you very much for taking time to come on my humble podcast and talk about it. Uh, I'm going to uh, use this opportunity to get you to promise to return, uh, to talk about uh, the malfeasance that goes on in our current time and maybe connect them together. Uh, and also to talk a little bit about your days at the New York times, cause that's a fascinating story in and of itself. I don't know how much you talk about yeah, that. I'd be happy to. All right. Excellent. Uh, I'm going to hold you to that. Uh, and uh, any appearances in Chicago you want to promote uh, before I let you go? Anything, any book uh, signings or no. anything? No, okay. No, but I'm always open to doing one. So, <laughs> well, books, books. I love sellers. Chicago. I went to uh, I went to Northwestern. So, oh, I thought you went to Brown. Well, I went to Northwestern for grad school. Oh, are you Medill? Yeah, I, I did yeah. not know that. Uh, I was figuring I would have read that uh, in your Wikipedia file, but whatever. Um, all right, go you Northwestern. All right, well, thank you very much, Jim. It was a pleasure talking to you. The name of the book is The Last Honest Man. It's in hardcover now. Do you have any idea when it's coming out in paperback? Uh, next uh, spring, I think, next May. Next spring. Yeah, I got some friends who are like, I only buy paperbacks because I like to put them on the back. <laughs> so whatever, okay, it'll be out in paperback soon enough. You can wait, I yeah. suppose. All right, thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate it, all right? Thank, thank you very much. All right, that's Jim. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Uh, have a happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Take care. Mm-hmm.